Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Herman Statz, who is a professor and the vice chair for research in the Department of Pathology at the Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Statz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for coming by. Of course. And uh, so you do some interesting research. It is focused around vaccines, uh, immunity, and developing adjuvants for vaccines. Yes, that is correct. So the first question right off the bat is, what exactly are adjuvants, and why do we need to use them? So adjuvants can be defined as as any substance that enhances immune responses induced by vaccination. And they're very helpful because they can allow us to use a lower dose of the vaccine antigen to induce protective immune responses. So, for example, if we want to vaccinate against tetanus and you did not have an adjuvant, you might need to give, let's say, just made-up number, 100 micrograms of tetanus vaccine antigen. But if you can add an adjuvant to that formulation, the adjuvant helps start the immune response So and enhance it. So maybe you can use only 10 micrograms of antigen. So instead of needing 100 micrograms of antigen per dose, you can now vaccinate with only 10 micrograms of antigen per dose. And now that 100 microgram of antigen can vaccinate 10 people. So by using the adjuvant, you can often have a dose-sparing effect, which means you use a lower dose that allows you to vaccinate more people and induce a more potent immune response. So is there a benefit to using a lower dose of the actual vaccine rather uh, apart from being able to vaccinate more people? It's hard to say. I mean, you would need to do studies to show that. You know, most of the time in our lab and in other labs, we will perform dose re- response studies. So we'll vaccinate animals with different doses of antigen, plus or minus adjuvant, so we can experimentally determine what dose of antigen induces protective immunity. So that is the goal. You know, we want to have an immune response that protects the host against toxin exposure or bacterial infection or viral infection, so we often experimentally determine that. And theoretically, you maybe could argue that a lower antigen dose would better drive the development of high-affinity antibodies, and high-affinity antibodies are known to be better at protecting than low-affinity antibodies, but I'm not sure if, if there are actual studies that have demonstrated that. Okay. So you recently wrote uh, a News and, Vu- News and Views uh, in Nature Genetics, or Nature Materials, sorry. Yes. And uh, where you described some work being done on the delivery method or the delivery vehicle of adjuvants and uh, discussing um, emulsions yes. as, as kind of the vehicle for delivery. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and why that's uh, more effective? So this was a, a new adjuvant formulation uh, manuscript that was submitted by a group. Uh, and this adjuvant formulation they used was a pickering emulsion, and I had never heard of a pickering emulsion before. Although I'm familiar with adjuvants, I didn't know what that particular formulation was, but I contacted one of my uh, vaccine adjuvant formulation colleagues, 
and they explained to me that a, a pickering emulsion is an emulsion that's made using solid particles to stabilize that emulsion. So quite often emulsions are, are oil and water formulations that don't have any solid particulate matter in them, but, a partic but the pickering emulsion uses a, a nanoparticle in that emulsion formulation. The idea for that vaccine formulation is that the pickering emulsion has some properties that allow antigen mobility in the surface of that emulsion and allows the antigens to better come in contact with receptors on antigen-presenting cells, and then it enhances the uptake of that antigen possibly by these antigen-presenting cells, and that's really the first step in inducing immune response. So this particular adjuvant formulation was better than other adjuvant formulations that are approved for use in humans when tested in animal models at inducing these immune responses. So it's really a new formulation that others had not used before, and in this study, evaluating them in animal models, it was just as good, or some cases better, than current adjuvants we use today. Okay, so not only do adjuvants improve the efficacy of vaccines, but there are methods to improve the delivery of adjuvants now, it seems like. Yeah, so, so adjuvants, as I said you know, before, they're very loosely de described or defined as substances that can enhance the immune response, but there are many ways that those substances can act. They can act by directly activating the innate immune system by binding specific receptors that activate cells, or they can be like this pickering emulsion where mm -hmm. they're designed to help enhance delivery of the antigen to the antigen-presenting cells in the immune system that then go on to induce the active immune response. So adjuvants can have many different mechanisms for enhancing immune responses. And so adjuvants themselves can be anything from, I guess, small molecules, drugs, to antibodies? Uh, or uh, Possibly. So if, if you have an antibody that would bind to your antigen, and if that antibody could, for example, activate complement, which can lead to inflammatory responses that would then activate the innate immune system, so that could possibly be used as an adjuvant. So again, very widely defined an, an adjuvant is anything that act, can activate the immune response. So it could be very many different types of, of substances to be used as an adjuvant. Okay. So another area of research in your lab that is very interesting to me is, um, I guess, uh, different delivery methods for vaccines themselves. So uh, one of the research areas is developing uh, like intranasal the delivery of vaccines for humans? Yes. Uh, so could you discuss why is that important versus, or why, it, why is that potentially preferable to, I guess, needles or injections? So, so there are a couple reasons that we like to think about uh, to, to justify the development of a nasally administered vaccine. One is just a practical issue in that some people don't like needles and will refuse sure. a vaccine because they don't like the needle. So in places where, 
for example, many medical clinics or hospitals want their staff to receive a vaccine for influenza every year. Well, some people don't like that, but by having a nasally delivered influenza vaccine, they would have an option to still be vaccinated while not having to receive the needle vaccine. In developing countries, sometimes needles are improperly disposed of. So if needles are used to deliver vaccines, the needles may be improperly disposed of and then they're reused and that contributes to the spread of infectious diseases. So if we had a method to vaccinate mm -hmm. that did not require needles, we could still induce protective immune responses while not having basically trash left behind the used needles that could lead to more transmission of infectious diseases. So that's the practical issue. The other issue is that by immunizing intranasally, we have the potential to induce immune responses in the mucosal tissues themselves. So we think of the, the intranasal immunization as a way to induce mucosal antibodies or secretory IgA antibodies that are produced in mucosal secretions. So, sorry to interrupt. So, what exactly are mucosal tissues? Yes, yeah, so, so if you think of any of the tissues in your body that have a moist, wet surface, so the, the inside of your mouth, the gastrointestinal tract, the reproductive tracts, the nasal cavity, those tissues that have a wet surface are the mucosal surfaces. And, and those surfaces are often the location where viruses and bacteria first infect us. So when we think about catching a cold or catching the flu, it's because most likely that we have breathed in that infectious agent in our upper respiratory tract or into our lung and it has uh, caused an infection at those mucosal surfaces. The, the mucosal immune system, which includes this secretory IgA antibody, is has evolved and has the ability to be produced locally, like in the nasal cavity, where it could bind to the flu virus or the cold virus as it first enters the host, that secretory IgA antibody could bind to it and block that virus from infecting us. When you give a vaccine with a needle, you usually do not induce this secretory IgA type of antibody, but you instead mostly induce an antibody that we call IgG. And the IgG is the major antibody that circulates in the blood, but it is not produced to the same level as the secretory IgA antibody is at mucosal tissue. So the, the potential benefit is that using mucosal immunization will induce, induce both serum IgG antibodies and the mucosal IgA antibodies and give you better protection against pathogens that infect at a mucosal surface. Wow, so the immune system then is, and maybe this will sound very naive, but it's, it's quite segmented. It's not just the, the serum uh, immune system that we think of. So there is a mucosal immunity, and there, uh, as you're describing with the IgA antibodies. So that's interesting. I, yeah, so we often think of, years ago, we would refer to the mucosal immune system as the common mucosal immune system okay. because the idea was that you could 
vaccinate at one mucosal site and get mucosal antibodies at all of the mucosal sites, as well as the systemic compartment. While when you vaccinate systemically, it basically remains in the systemic compartment, but very little activation in the mucosal immune compartment would happen after needle vaccination. So, so there, it is compartmentalized to some extent. So the, the research uh, that you do in, in studying nasal delivery of, of vaccines is done with uh, particular animal models. Yes. Right? And, and uh, rabbits are used for this. So, so I'm working in cancer biology. I've, I've just worked with mice. So why is it that you prefer using the rabbit animal model over mice or, or another different animal model? So there are a couple reasons why we use the rabbit for our nasal vaccine studies. While we often also use mice in our studies, if you just think of how big a mouse is and the size and shape of its nose, <laughs> you can see that the size and shape of the mouse nose is very different than a human nose. And even though the rabbit is a small animal, the size and shape and structure of the rabbit nasal cavity is closer to a human nasal cavity. So by using the rabbit, we have an animal model that we feel better mimics the size and shape of a human upper respiratory tract so that we hope that the vaccine studies we do in the rabbit can be easily translated into applications for use in humans. Okay. And another study in your lab for, with which, uh, for which you use the rabbit model is studying Zika virus, right? Could you give a, a short description of that project? So we are using pregnant rabbits okay. to determine if infection with Zika virus causes birth defects in their infants. So in that study, we have used rabbits for a different reason. Rabbits are very similar to humans in the way that pregnant rabbits transfer maternal antibodies to their infants. So their placental function is similar to humans uh, the maternal transfer of IgG to the infants during development and maternal transfer of IgA in the breast milk of, of rabbits is similar to humans. So we had written a grant where we proposed to use rabbits to determine if Zika virus infection of pregnant rabbits would cause birth defects simply because the rabbits are a better, better model for maternal antibody transfer. And we thought that if the rabbits did show birth defects in their infants after Zika virus infection, we could then use the rabbit as a small animal model to evaluate maternal vaccination to see if it could prevent against Zika virus-induced pathology in the infants. So far in the studies we have done, we haven't seen any birth defects in the infant rabbits born to Zika virus-infected mothers. Okay, so the, I guess the state of Zika virus research at large would probably be very limited then. If there are, so unless there are studies being done using mice, but 
uh, from what you're telling me, it seems like using mice, at least for something like Zika virus, might not be the best model for translation into humans. Right, so there are Zika virus pathogenesis studies being done in mice and in non-human primates. So, of course, non-human primates are an excellent model for humans, but they're very costly and it takes a long time for their breeding programs. So, so mechanistically, uh, mouse models are preferred because it's a it's a faster reproductive uh, timeline. It's more economical animal model to use, but there are differences between the maternal transfer of antibodies in mice versus humans. So, so rabbits are a better model, but in the studies we've done so far, we have not seen any fetal pathology after Zika virus infection of the mothers. So speaking of uh, non-human primates, actually, so in general, when you're trying to, I guess, bring a vaccine or a new adjuvant or something from a small animal model all the way to human trials, do you have to go through non-human primates as a part of the, the clinical trials to be for the... You don't have to. And, and I was at a meeting last year at the NIH where a spokesperson from the FDA was there because everyone seems to think that FDA requires people to use non-human primates as an animal model to gain approval for human studies, and, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, they want an animal model that maybe mimics the human disease if they're going to do a challenge study, so we often use non-human primates in our studies, particularly our HIV vaccine studies, because it's, a, it's an excellent animal model. But, but using non-human primates is not a requirement. Okay. So in addition to running a lab, being a PI, you are also the vice chair of research and pathology. What exactly does that mean? So as the vice chair of research, I'm responsible for a number of things in the department. So uh, we just had our science, culture, and accountability plan released that that we'll talk about later this week at the graduate student seminar. So I was responsible for doing that. I'm also the person that's responsible for making sure that everyone completes their responsible conduct of research training. We also have a number of new research faculty joining the department and for those junior faculty we have a mentoring committee that helps guide them in the development of their career so I'm responsible for that. So the number of research related uh, activities in the department that I'm responsible for. Okay. So over the course of I guess going from being a because you started at Duke as a postdoctoral fellow. I did. And you never left. That's correct. (laughs) So so what do you think, uh, what exactly about the administrative side of being a scientist or faculty in a, in a big uh, university like Duke, uh, what, what do you think um, makes you able to push research forward more than just running a lab? So I'm me, sorry for the way I, yeah, I let, phrased that question. So are you asking me if my participation in administrative activities is 
is beneficial to my lab work or what? no so so I guess you being uh, a scientist mm-hmm. you you have you, you have your particular area of research mm-hmm. but in addition to that you get to have this administrative role yes uh, so how do you think that that role uh, is able to help push science as a whole oh I understand forward? yeah so I, I think I think the administrative activities I do help move science forward by really trying to create an environment that best supports research. So, you know, you're right, I have my lab, I have my own research mission here, but particularly my administrative activities in the department, you know, we're trying to create an environment here that is supportive for all research faculty. So the junior folks, we want to make sure they have of the mentoring support that they need, the guidance they need to help maneuver and develop their career as, as they you know, grow in their research career here at Duke. You know, grant support, when we write grants, you know, we use the grants and contracts administrators in the department. That's my responsibility to make sure that the, the researchers have the resources they need to help write and submit their grants. So, so having a an organization that's research-driven, there are many activities that aren't necessarily science activities, but rather support activities that the scientists need to do their work. So I think the administrative goal at Duke is to create an environment that allows all of the faculty members to succeed in their research missions. So that, I I think, is fantastic because... uh, even though I'm, I'm still fairly new to, to academia and academic research, I have heard of hyper-competitive departments and institutes all over the country. I won't name any in particular, but um, can you comment on that a little bit? There are, there are institutions out there that maybe don't have uh, Herman Statz, vice chair of research, to, to be super supportive of junior faculty, and, and they, there, there are programs out there that really kind of push faculty to be competitive with each other and they have really short uh like tenure track reviews like after two or three years of being hired they uh start looking to see whether or not you'll stay the course so do you have any comments on that well so for me the, the reason i have stayed at duke all these years so this is my 25th year here and as you mentioned i came as a postdoc with with duke gave me the environment to pursue the type of work that I wanted to do, but I was also able to find collaborators at Duke that helped me pursue research in areas that I didn't have the expertise myself. So it was, Duke has always been a great environment for me to find collaborators and partners in the work I do. So, you know, we talked earlier about nasal immunization in rabbits and some of the work that we did for that. We monitored nasal clearance times of formulations we delivered into the nasal cavity of, of rabbits, and I had a collaborator that helped me do that. So, you know, I have succeeded at Duke simply because of my ability to get collaborators and colleagues to work with me. So that is a, a key to success for me. If, if everyone was isolated in their own individual labs and did not interact and work with each other, you know, it, it's difficult for me 
to understand how that would operate well. You know, we try to have a good team uh, approach here where, yes, everyone has their own individual research activities within their laboratory, but by playing a role as part of a team, we also have a lot of collaborative activities that we're involved with as well. So you have both your, your personal work and the collaborative work, and I think that combination really helps create a good environment. That's great. And one more thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is actually something I remember from when I interviewed here mm-hmm. last year, actually. Uh, you have a farm. I do. And you're a professor at Duke University, and you have a farm. Yes. So how or why did that happen? I, I grew up in a very small town, and as I was going through high school and college, part-time jobs were, were doing farm work. So, you know, that's just something that's outside of my education and my career that has just always been a part of, of me and how I grew up. So, you know, that's another reason I've stayed at Duke. I can have the opportunity to work at one of the nation's best medical schools but I could also drive a short distance out of town and, and live out in the country and have a farm. So, you know, it's it's something that is a lot of work for me at some times, but it also gives me uh, the escape from the pressures and stresses of work sometimes to go out and do the farm work or ride a tractor or whatever. <laughs> so it's it's just part of what I like to do to relax. But what do you need to escape from? You just described such a collegial environment that you created. As you know, you know, academic research requires a lot of time and effort, writing grants and and things. So I think everyone should have an outside activity or a hobby just to to be a well-rounded individual and not focus on work all the time and and that's my that's my hobby. And uh, I heard uh, another hobby of yours is a whole pig roast in the summer. (laughs) So each year for the graduate program, I have all the students and the graduate faculty out to our house, and we do a whole pig roast. Yes. Well, uh, hopefully that will happen again this year. Great. It should. Okay. (laughs) Well, if it does, I look forward to it. Yes, I look forward to having it. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Stassi. Thank you. of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.